Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har valgt at ændre programmet i den her uge på grund af begivenhederne i Israel efter attentaterne i Israel den 7. oktober. Det er i dag tirsdag den 17. oktober, 10 dage efter massakren i Israel og efter nogle dages bombardementer om udsigt til en landinvasion, som er annonceret, men som vi ikke ved, hvornår kommer. Det er konteksten for min samtale i den her uge. Jeg har talt med palæstinenseren Nisrin Haj Ahmad, som gennem de sidste 30 år af forskellige fredelige midler har forsøgt at fremme palæstinensernes sag og sikre palæstinenserne en selvstændig stat. Hej, Rune. Hej, Nisrin. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Hun er født i Palæstina i 1974, men blev tidligt tvunget til at flygte, fordi hendes far var PLO-aktivist og blev forfulgt af de israelske sikkerhedsstyrker. Hun voksede op i Jordan, men hver sommer tog de på ferie i Palæstina, hvor hun opholdt sig sammen med sin store palæstinensiske familie. Hun pendlede med andre ord frem og tilbage mellem Jordan og Palæstina i sin ungdom. Stærkt præget af det aktivistiske miljø var hun overbevist om, at hun ville gøre en forskel og bruge sit liv på at kæmpe palæstinensernes sag. Hun var også overbevist om, at det ikke skulle være voldeligt. Hun så nogle unge palæstinenser smide med sten, tænkte for det første, at det ikke var noget for hende, og for det andet, at det ikke var vejen til sejr. Derfor uddannede hun sig til jurist og blev som relativt ung tilknyttet PLO som en del af deres forhandlingshold og juridisk rådgiver. Hun var med til det efterspil til Oslo-aftalerne, som hed The Final Peace Talks, som fandt sted i slutningen af 90'erne. Hun var en del af det juridiske hold, som i 2003 indklagede den israelske sikkerhedsmur for den internationale straffedomstol, ICJ. Og hun har siden deltaget i forskellige former for aktivisme og organisationer og forsøgt at skabe betingelser for en selvstændig stat for Palæstina. Hun rejste i 2007 efter skuffelsen over valget 2006, som førte til Hamas vand i Gaza og presset Fatah og som jo er associeret med PLO, som var hendes parti, udrejste hun til USA, hvor hun studerede på Kennedy School ved Harvard University under den legendariske organizer Marshall Gans, som vi også har haft her i Langsomme Tarmtaler, og vendte tilbage til Jordan, hvor hun er stærkt aktiv i BDS-bevægelsen, den bevægelse, der siger Boycott Divest Sanction, som er et forsøg på at ramme Israel med gennem økonomiske sanktioner og ved at få finanssektoren til at flytte penge væk fra israelske firmaer. Hun er direktør og grundlægger af Achel i Jordan, som er en institution, der hjælper forskellige med at organisere sig, hjælper forskellige med at kæmpe for deres politiske rettigheder i stort og småt i hele Mellemøsten. Det her er min samtale med Nisrin Haj Ahmad. God fornøjelse. Nisrin, so good to see you. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you for having me. Your whole life has been shaped by the Israeli occupation and the Palestinian struggle for, for liberation. You were born into subjugation and spent a lot of your grown-up life trying by peaceful means to contribute to the emancipations of the Palestinians. You grew up in a family where your father was an an, an, an activist and a dentist as, <laughs> as well, and you were born in Palestine but had to leave quite early. Can you tell us a little bit about your family background? So uh, my father was um, expelled or exiled from his hometown, from his country, um, in uh, 1974. 
I was two years old. I don't remember it, but I do remember um, a couple of years later when my mom decided to follow him. So she packed up all of our belongings and we left to uh, live in Jordan. And um, I grew up in a political house. He, um, he was expelled because he was a part of resisting the occupation. And uh, to be honest, it wasn't unique. Everyone was resisting the occupation. Um, he was part of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, when we were growing up in Jordan. And he was also a dentist, as you said. And um, I learned from him that uh, even as a dentist, you can be active, uh, you can be political. So he was the, elected as uh, the head of the syndicate for dentists, the dentists' union, and later uh, also elected as the head of the Arab dentists' uh, union or syndicate. And he had meetings at home that I was uh, allowed to sit on, not that I understood much, but it was good uh, education. Um, and as I told you, um, everyone was political. Uh, my mom's uh, brother, my uncle, was in prison during that period as well. My mom's cousin, whom uh, we used to uh, play with, he would um, climb up the berries tree and collect berries for us was also um, arrested uh, and imprisoned and uh, in Israeli jails as a political prisoner. But uh, since the occupation started in 1948, there were more than a million Palestinians who were arrested uh, as political prisoners in Israeli jails. So more than a million of a five million population. Uh, so it's a common story, but um, that was my upbringing. So you you lived in, in in Jordan and became a promising young basketball player. <laughs> but but every summer you would go back to your family in Palestine, so you had to cross the border, and that was a, a special experience, so to speak. Yes, uh, my mother and my siblings and I we would cross, and we would leave my father behind us in Jordan because he wasn't allowed to return to his country. And uh, we would cross the bridge, we call it the bridge, uh, from Jordan to um, Palestine. It was a very difficult experience uh, because during that uh, period, and this is early 1980s, uh, they used to strip search us. So we would enter into like a stall with my mother, the children, and they would, um, we would remove our clothes and my mom would remove her clothes and... Uh, Will stay in the underwear, and they will. Uh, a, a, sol a woman soldier would um, would search us uh, before entering that stall. We would uh, give our shoes, in, put them in boxes, so they search our shoes. And uh, I would feel ashamed. I didn't know why exactly, but I did feel ashamed going through that and seeing my mother like that. And then after we come out of the stalls, we will all be sitting in a room and they would bring the shoes boxes and pile them up like a mountain in the middle of the hall on the bridge. And we would all run to the shoes, to the mountain of shoes, looking for our shoes, worried to lose one. And, um, and then I, I used to think like, why are we like that, like running like animals for shoes? Or why are we strip searched? But I, um, 
I didn't make much of it. Like I didn't really understand it. Later, I think as a grown up, um, when I read Paolo Ferreri and uh, read uh, Frank Fennan, I, I realized that um, although I was feeling angry at my own people, it's actually the, you know, the structure of the occupation and oppression that made us be ashamed and um, and be um, angry and anxious. Um, but then we would cross the border and get to my cousins and uh, my uncles and aunts, and it would be a beautiful summer where we would have family. And I remember they, uh, one of my cousins took me um, to a Funun um, performance. It was done in secret, although it was just a dance performance. And we wore our kufiyas and went to attend it and uh, listen to this beautiful piece. Uh, it was called um, Of Mishal about a Palestinian who refused to join the uh, Turkish Mandate Army. So those were my experiences. So you, you lived the, your summers in Palestine with your the greater part of your family and, and then the rest of your life you went to school and played basketball in, in Jordan. I, I read somewhere that you saw young people throwing stones in Palestine when you were very young. And 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 you you thought of yourself as stone throwers and say that would not be your 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 strategy of fighting for for liberation. So you chose to go to law school instead. Yeah, um, what happened was that I was in sixth grade, uh, twelve years old, and I begged my mom to leave me all summer because we used to go part of the summer, and she uh, to leave me in Palestine with my grandmother, who was uh, easier than my mom. She gave us our freedom to go out. And I went out to get ice cream and I was holding the ice cream and uh, in front of me were these kids my age, almost my height, uh, throwing stones at, a, at Israeli soldiers, you know, the David and Goliath uh, metaphor. And I thought, okay, what do I do with my ice cream? What do I do? Do I throw stones? So I threw the stone, but then I hit the kid in front of me, the Palestinian kid in front of me. So, um, so he turned around and he said, it's okay, you really don't have to hit stones. Um, anyway, I mean, it was a funny story at the time, but um, yeah, my uh, I thought my um, added value would be through law. I studied law because uh, I thought that um, if we knew the law, we would make good arguments, we would have the law to our side, we would prepare our cases. And um, being a, a child of a refugee, my dad comes from a, a village next to Jaffa. We are trained to study hard, work hard, play hard, all that. And um, I studied hard and worked hard. And I realized that the law was to our side, like a lot of it was to our side. But um, I was naive, to be honest with you, because then I realized that um, there is no such thing as like the rule of law when it comes to the Palestine, uh, Palestinian occupation and apartheid. And it's really the law of the powerful that rules. But this must have been in the mid 90s. And there must have been at the time after the peace agreement between the Israelis and the PLO in 1993, there must have been a certain sense of optimism. I, I know that the, the conditions yeah. were, were dire, but at the time, I even remember that from Denmark, that there was a certain sense of, of optimism after 93. Yes, even my father was allowed to return to Palestine 
we got on a bus with 30 other men and women who were in exile before and we all drove and sang on the bus and we crossed that bridge in a very different experience and um, and I was optimistic to the extent I joined the Palestinian negotiations the team I joined uh, something called negotiation support unit we were a group of lawyers and got engaged in the talks thinking that uh, we have you know strong arguments we have the right we have the law and you know we're the native people of Palestine we should win and what was your experience what was it like you came as a young woman highly educated strong sense of confidence i i imagine being a, a legal advisor to the plo team what was that like at the time I was part of a very strong team. We were like 14 lawyers, came from all places from the world, different uh, universities, backgrounds. Um, you know, I met with them yesterday. We had a reunion and we were saying we did really well preparing our case and working with the negotiators. But um, at the time, Rune, we had the, the two-state solution was still um, an idea. You know, it was a possibility. But then we went to the negotiations and uh, different rounds of the negotiations, and it was clear with every round, uh, not only that the law, that the, the powerful decide basically what is right and what is not, but we, it also became clear that the right of return will not be given to the Palestinians. So, um, so Palestinian refugees will not be returning to their homes, which is their right, um, and by law as well, uh, by UN resolutions and international humanitarian law. And for me, that was a huge deal. Like, how would we have peace if more than seven million of us don't return to their homes? And then also there was, um, you know, um, Gaza and the West Bank would be two separate small units, not one country, and the settlements would continue to be there. and we will not have um, um, sovereignty over Jerusalem. And um, I woke up basically that there is no such thing as a two-state solution given that, or that there is peace. And the peace talks failed. Uh, the Americans claimed that Arafat made it fail and that he's a terrorist. And that was the end of it. And to be honest, it was very difficult times for me because like, if you give up hope on negotiations then how do you how do you resist your the occupation of your country and people and yet you continued because later you were part of the legal team that made the case at the ICJ against what is labeled the security war this 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 Israeli war and you actually i know this was only an advisory opinion but you actually did achieve some success there i i remember that as well here <laughs> from how was this process um so yeah i continued even for 3 years after the palestine after the negotiations failed and after the second intifada broke out i was kind of um, stubborn my some of my other colleagues quit faster than i um, it took me a while to process, unfortunately. But uh, yes, uh, the ICJ, um, the UN General Assembly, uh, made a, a resolution that the ICJ should provide legal opinion on the building of the wall. 
And we, again, prepared our case and other countries as well prepared uh, their opinions. And we submitted our, um, our file, our argument. We had great lawyers working with us and, uh, and we, we got a great, uh, we celebrated, we got a great uh, advisory opinion. It said that the wall should be, the, the build part of the wall should be dismantled. And it's an infringement of the international uh, humanitarian law, an infringement of the Geneva Convention, and the, we should be compensated for the damages. But um, that was not uh, implemented or respected, just like all other UN resolutions and legal opinions. You know, as the native people of the country, we you realize that these laws are written by the colonizers before, but even when you get something out of them, it's hmm. not applied. So you are about you are a little older than 30 years at the time. You already engaged in two processes and you end up with basically, well, I think I guess with nothing. Uh, yes, I was uh, married at the time and I had uh, you know my children and um, my daughter, my stepdaughter. Uh, when uh, the Israeli invasion happened in the Second Intifada, they, um, the Israelis uh, occupied our house, our building. We had a flat. We lived in a flat in a building, and they, the army, uh, were in the building shooting at Palestinians from our building. And we slept in the corridors every night. And and my stepdaughter said, like, if my brother steals chocolate from me, will you ask me to split it with him? <laughs> And that's a difficult question for a, a mother who's also a citizen. In, yeah, in mother the and a Palestinian, and you know she's smart. She knows the Palestinian story, and her mother is part of the negotiations for peace uh, to split the land. And she asks you this moral dilemma: her brother steals her chocolate. Will I ask her to split it with him? And what did you respond? Um. To be honest with you, I can't remember, but I do remember being in panic mode, trying to wiggle my way out of it. I don't know if I gave a clear answer. How did you experience the elections in 2000 and, and the legislative election in 2006? You grew up in a PLO family. Your father was a PLO activist. You were also part of, 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 of the PLO. And then Hamas came to power in, in Gaza and, and, and later forced the PLO out. Uh, how did you experience this process? So I was then um, part of the Palestinian team coordinating the evacuation, the Israeli evacuation of Gaza, from Gaza. So Sharon declared that he will pull settlers out of Gaza. And a Palestinian team was coordinating with Israelis that pull out. And we were talking about the buildings they're going to destroy, what will happen to the rubble, uh, the agriculture, the greenhouses, what will happen with the greenhouses. But we were also talking about the borders, what will happen with the borders. And um, again, American mediation or rule, and uh, there will be no airport. If we build an airport, they will shell it. There will be no port to Gaza. Same thing, they will shell it and they will destroy it. And that leaves you two, two land crossings, one with Israel and one with Egypt. And the one with Israel, they have control over and they will not let Gazans out of Gaza into Israel or to 
you know, the rest of the world. So that leaves Egypt. And um, and the, the agreement that they were proposing clearly meant that Gaza will be a prison, a huge prison. And um, so when Hamas won, after uh, the second Intifada, after the failure of the Camp David talks, the final status talks in 2000 and 2001, after um, the evacuation of uh, Israel turning into uh, the biggest prison in the world in 2004 and five, to be honest, it wasn't a surprise that they won because the alternative party achieved nothing. They won fair and square in the elections. At this point, you've been going through a lot of different processes already. Was this the point when you then left to America to study? Yeah, uh, I signed my resignation after the the story I told you about the border crossing and Gaza. And um, I was depressed for a while, but eventually I made my way to uh, Harvard Kennedy School and I... Uh, Learned with a guy there, a professor there called Marshall Gans, community organizing and social movements, uh, nurturing social movements. And and we've had him on the show. We talked to him before, and he's a, uh, an inspiration here as well for his incredible work with the social movement and empowering people who feel disempowered. And this, after having been uh, at at the at the Hubble School, studied under Marshall Gans, and he was kind of a mentor. Uh, for you, then yeah, then you became involved in other ways of, of participating politically. Uh, you made uh, the Ahil, uh, that way you were the founder of the CEO, but you also became part of the BDS movement. Yes, Ahil was to enable other people to organize grassroots action for all sorts, all sorts of rights, um, not just Palestinian liberation. And uh, I joined the BDS and uh, was part of the group that started BDS Jordan chapter to resist normalization with Israel in Jordan, from Jordan. I returned to live in Jordan after I studied at Harvard. And uh, the BDS movement, I believe in it. I didn't throw stones, but I believe in the BDS approach. It worked for South Africa and other struggles, boycotting Israel, divesting from its uh, from it, putting sanctions on it. Um, and uh, the BDS at a global level was uh, making good strides, um, successes more at the people level, at the unions level, at the organizations level, perhaps less so at some governments level. Uh, but then, I don't know if you recall, BDS came under huge attack. And Israel uh, starts saying it's anti-Semitic and that it's uh, terrorist even. They started uh, character assassinating some of their of some of its leaders, preventing uh, foreign activists from entering uh, Israel and Palestine. And uh, they even uh, tried and succeeded in certain places to delegitimize it maybe in 34 places, some parliaments, I'm not sure about the Danish parliament, some parliaments also consider it uh, anti-Semitic, but it's not. It's asking for three things, and to Israeli occupation of the Palestinian land, and to the apartheid system, and return of refugees. That's it. We don't have a problem with the Jews. We have a problem with the Zionist settler colonial system, with the Israeli regime. 
So yeah, um, I continue to be uh, committed to BTS and part of it, but um, it's under huge attack. And it reminds me how the Palestinian um, uh, representatives were delegitimized in the negotiations, making Hamas um, win in Gaza elections. Um, the, they want to delegitimize the BTS leadership and the BTS uh, idea. But it seems when I look at all the things that you've done, all the different strategies that you have pursued, that that these the attacks in in Israel on the on October seventh are it seems to betray everything that that you've been w- w- working for in in your course, and that this extreme violence and the brutality of of these attacks and the way that that they shock horror among civilians among children and among grandparents very, very old people they, they seem to be, betray what you have been standing for and uh, and what what you've tried to achieve for the palestinians how do you see them uh, i'll tell you how i see them in a second okay but first i think what betrayed everything i stand for is israel and uh, the united states and the europeans because they're the ones who betrayed uh, peaceful negotiation. They're the ones who betrayed uh, civil resistance. They're the ones who betrayed nonviolent uh, BDS movement. So I'm betrayed by those. Uh, as for Hamas, um, I'm like you. I'm not, uh, I don't defend killing of civilians. No way. I condemn the killing of civilians. I do want an investigation because I'm getting confusing news from israel they claimed that 40 babies were beheaded and then that story was a lie and cnn apologized for it today i watched a video from channel 2 israel channel 2 with a woman called yasmin porat from a kibbutz who was uh, let go by hamas and she tells a story where they were uh, taken as a human shield basically they're held by that's her story. I'm repeating it. Held by the by Hamas militants, and then uh, Israeli army came and they shot at them. And six or seven, she says, were then dead from the Israelis from the Israeli kibbutz. So I know that from uh, the numbers of Israelis who died, there's more than 300 soldiers. These are combatants who are dead. So I want to know the truth. How many civilians were killed? Is it real that children? Uh, I don't think it's real. I don't get me wrong. I'm not defending the killing of civilians, but I do want to know the truth of this. At the same time, I uh, I condemn the murder of uh, Palestinian. You know, today how many people have died in the last week in uh, Gaza? Three thousand. 1,000 of them are under uh, 18 years old. They're children and youth. The genocide happening now on Gaza, that's totally unacceptable. It's crazy that we're all watching it. We're watching it live. We're, we're watching live that, there, that Israel stopped electricity, water, uh, food entering Gaza. No humanitarian aid. And then in my old days, we would talk about the Geneva Convention and international humanitarian law. There is no respect for Geneva Convention and international humanitarian law. There is no respect for humanity. Not from a a small group in Israel. This is from the whole Israeli regime. 
supported by the United States and the European country. You know, even before Saturday, before this happened, in the last 13 years, you know how many Palestinian civilians were killed by Israel in the last 13 years? 10,652. Where was the outcry from the world on that? The same outcry should have happened. That didn't happen. If human souls are equal, then we should respect all human souls. I think that there are a lot of young people here who are very supportive of Palestine. And mm. something that's been changing over the last 10 years, I think because the attitude has changed among the American youth, and, and I actually think the Black Lives Matter movement have been uh, mobilizing here here in, in Denmark as uh, as as well for, for the Palestines. And, you know, the young Democrats, the young students in, in America, they've been mobilizing for the Palestines. And I feel, and these are also the kids that my kids see. So you see them around Copenhagen. Now you see Palestinian flags, free Palestine, many places around here. And I think these people have always been horrified about the 10,000 people. They, may, they might not know the number, they're very young, but they've been horrified by this number. And they always felt that they had that you had the moral high ground. And 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 I think they feel that they, they are in a difficult position now to defend the cause after October 7th. They feel that the moral high ground has been taken away because they've always, you know, they're not the general public, they're not the Danish government, but there are lots, there are lots of people who invested a lot in this. And I'm not saying that you have any moral obligation to them. I'm saying they support you and they want to go a long way with you. And they felt that October 7th was difficult because it reinforced the Israeli argument that we cannot be safe in our own country, something that they've been arguing against for years. And also this, the, they, they, they reinforced some very, very bad stereotypes uh, about the... How do you respond to these young people? I met some of them when I came to Copenhagen a few weeks ago when I saw you. I even saw in the streets some people wearing T-shirts, visit Palestine, or it has the map of Palestine. I asked one of them, why are you wearing it? And uh, he said, because we support Palestinians and they're the native people of the land and they're the last like colonized, um, occupied, still standing and fighting for 75 years. So we admire them. I, I appreciate them and I'm thankful to their solidarity. I, I acknowledge that it's hard. It's a difficult period for all of us, not just for them. Uh, there are uh, 12.7 million Palestinians around the world. Um, 6.4 million in historic Palestine in the West Bank, Gaza, 1948 Israel. There are 5.7 million Palestinians in the Arab world. Um, there's uh, 700,000 in other countries. Uh, we're a big group, Palestinians. We're diverse. We have a good cause. I would say to them, uh, defend the 12.7 million and uh, tell the story from uh, the 40s up till now. The story is not about the last week. It's okay. The last week, very sad, very unfortunate. It's still happening in Gaza as you and I speak. It's heartbreaking. But the story started before, and this story of uh, colonizing and settler colonialism, expansion, appropriation of land, of lives, it needs to be told. 
And when this cycle of violence, hopefully the Israeli aggression ends tonight as we speak, um, then we continue the struggle, hopefully with the youth of Denmark. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so too. You know, many would also say when you employ that we continue the struggle, we want, and this of course raises the difficult question, who's representing the we? Uh, so, so if we imagine that, that there would be just hypothetical, that there would be some kind of uh, negotiations for some kind of truce first, settlement, hopefully peace, sovereignty after that, uh, then you, it could be argued that Hamas gained a legitimate democratic mandate 20 years. You know, there hasn't been elections since 2006 in, in Gaza. And I, I, But I, I heard the Palestinian ambassador to the UK uh, yesterday explaining why that he was the he was representing uh, Fatah and and he was the representative of the Palestinians. But I do believe it is it is not such an easy question to answer. Who should represent the Palestinians now? Who's the leadership who could negotiate on your behalf? It's a difficult question. I don't have an answer. But the only thing I know is for uh, negotiations to work, they need to achieve justice. Justice will bring peace. And the negotiators have to represent the 12.7 I was telling you about. They can't represent the, the millions in Gaza or the West Bank. They need to represent all of the Palestinians in the Arab world, refugee um, camps uh, in foreign countries and in historic Palestine. Another difficult question, but we must confront it, is, is that... You know, the solutions uh, from here, no one knows better than you. You've seen so many blind alleys or dead, dead ends in, in this process. And I feel almost out of a habit that we write, now we must have the two-state solution. But then you look at the map, you say, well, this Gaza is becoming very small. The West Bank, you have a lot of, of uh, settlers, colonialist settlers. One is asking himself, what state? I mean, what, what does this two-state Solution. Look, I've been discussing this with a, a lot with my son, who's 18, and whether the, it should be just one state and how would that appear, not an apartheid state, but a state of, of equal rights. And I know all solutions seem impossible from here, but you know, this is what Nelson Mandela said, it always looks impossible until it's done. So what, 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 what would be the most plausible solution uh, for you? Yeah, I think I'm with your son on this one. Um, <laughs> Uh, the Palestinian uh, refugees have to return, the right of return to their homes. And once they do return, because they are the majority now, uh, and they return to their homes, um, Israel cannot be a state for the Jewish people. It uh, will be a state that has all these people. It needs to be to give rights to everyone and the native people, us, we will have to decide, like whoever wants to live in democratic state with, with respect of humanity, with respect for equal rights, then welcome. We've never had a problem with the Jewish people. We're not, we didn't participate in the Holocaust. This is not our problem. So yeah, and um, it looks impossible until it's possible. Looking at um, my, my son will be delighted to hear that he'll say that he was right that <laughs> that, 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 he, that he was right uh, all all the time. 
But lo looking at the map and seeing who's supporting the Palestinians, who's neutral but yet maintaining that a two-state solution must be achieved, you know, the positions haven't changed very much over the years. I mean, India changed their, their position. Some other countries changed their position. What has changed is that the power balance between those supporting Palestine and the two-state solution and, and those who are uh, unilaterally on the side of, of Israel, that has changed. You see China, for instance, has a very different leverage in world affairs today than they had 30 years ago. The processes we've been talking about, they've been uh, dealt with the Americans. The Americans always been at the table and there was always with the West there. I'm not, I don't think a lot of the respect of human rights or liberal rights in, in China or India, South, South Africa for, for that matter. But do you think that, that it's time for the Palestinians to seek new negotiations avenue and what prospects do you see there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I told you that we uh, had a reunion with the lawyers that we used to work together in the negotiation support unit. And that's one takeaway we all agreed to. We gave a lot of attention and leverage and weight to the um, to the US and Europe. And because, as you say, they had all that power, but um, going forward, they cannot continue to be the mediators because they are biased. I mean, look at the, their position now as the war continues on Gaza. I read a report in the Huffington Post about leaked documents from the State Department to their embassies saying that you cannot talk about de-escalation of violence. So they cannot be, and, and history proves that it. it's not my opinion. I mean, there's a lot of lessons there. So yes, uh, different, uh, because the power dynamic globally is changing, we need to have different um, brokers or mediators. And I don't know, I think as we speak, the resolution from uh, Brazil and South Africa is supposed to be put to the Security Council. Brazil and South Africa, other countries like that, that understand uh, what it means to have a liberation movement, that understand what it means to be colonized in the past, not colonizers, but colonized in the past. And we have to work hard with them and... Um, and do what we've done in the past again, inshallah. There are two ways of looking at it. This one is saying, well, they claim to represent the global south. They say this, the, the global south. And you know, the global south after the Second World War, it was a very progressive movement. It was they wanted different political economy, Chava uh, al-Nero, you know, there were all these promises from... And today, who's representing the global south? They're pretty. They're pretty authoritarian regimes. Yeah. So, 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 so one strategy would be to say we want to use them as alliance partners to pressure the West, or we want to broker deals with with them. Which way do you prefer? I think uh, you know why I'm I'm reluctant in the answer because a part of me. Uh, also thinks that uh, first you have to extract freedom. Yeah. before you sit and negotiate, you know? So, yes, negotiations, and yes, I was there, but there, there is a struggle for freedom that needs to go on until that leverage happens. I know we've used uh, diplomacy and negotiations and civil uh, disobedience and action and armed resistance 
So perhaps in the right moment of time, the negotiations would be um, a path again. So that's why I'm reluctant in my answer. But a more direct answer to you, perhaps broker. Well, my last question, Nisreen, I've already taken up a, a, a lot of your time, which is on an almost existential uh, level. All the things we've been talking about, they have led to dissolution, sense of loss, and, and yet you're, you have high spirits and you're still engaged. What, what keeps your hope up? Um, I think the resistance, the resilience of uh, my people, especially in historic Palestine, uh, whether in uh, in the Jordan Valley as their villages are being destroyed, against settler violence happening in the West Bank. They continue uh, in Gaza now. I send uh, friends in Gaza messages every day and when they get some uh, internet to respond to me, they, um, they're they strong. They're very sad and, uh, and they feel that the whole world has betrayed them, but they're strong. I get hope from that. I get hope thinking that we're impressive, you know, 75 years, and we still keep going. <laughs> Who would have thought? I mean, many Israeli leaders thought that we will forget or will we accept or we will leave. And, um, and we're still strong. I teach my son to be strong as well. So um, that gives me hope. Even now, like what's happening these days, the level of activism and individual action, the demonstrations in Morocco and in uh, Baghdad and in Yemen and in Jordan and in in uh, Kuwait and in uh, Denmark, Spain, London, like Washington, San Francisco, like all that gives me a sense of hope. And, you know, at AHEL, we help people organize uh, collective action for uh, uh, different causes, not just Palestinian liberation. It could be women's rights, um, uh, people with disability rights, election, um, voting rights. And uh, I see the progress little by little on their small causes, but one after one after one. And that gives me hope. I feel like I'm part of a quiet, small revolution, but it's an important, quiet, uh, small revolution that is growing. So, yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Nisreen. Thank you, Rune. Good conversation with you. Thank you, Nisreen. You Bye. have a good evening. Bye. Den 17. oktober 2023. I næste uge taler jeg med den forhenværende rådgiver for den britiske premierminister Tony Blair, Alastair Campbell. Vi kommer også ind på det, som jeg har talt med Nedrine om i den her samtale. Nemlig, hvordan forhandler man med terrorister? Alastair Campbell var nemlig også rådgiver for Tony Blair under forhandlingerne med IRA og det overraskende forløb, der førte frem til en fredsaftale med en gruppe, som meget længe i Storbritannien havde været betragtet som terrorister, men som de alligevel tog med til forhandlingsbordet. Den her udgave af Langsomme Samtaler var som de forrige, sat sammen af vores gode ven og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak fordi du lyttede med.